Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William. With me today is Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Hi, William. Today, we are going to talk about grants and finance. So sometimes that can be super intimidating. Money is sometimes really scary, but it's super important, particularly for the domestic violence movement, for the agencies that work in this movement, to know about grants and finance. And if you are not working at an agency, but you're volunteering or you're donating to an agency, there are interactions with grants and finance in those ways too. And so we're going to cover a wide range of topics on this episode. We'll see where the conversation takes us. But Samantha and I aren't going to do this topic alone. We have two of our lovely co-workers, Deb Butts and Ryan Thomas. Hi, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. This is both of your first episodes. We're very excited. Ryan is a grant writer. Got the title right. Deb, never going to get your title right. It is, wait a minute, finance and administrative technical assistance manager. Close. Close. Technical support. I'm the FAPS manager. Okay. Oh, that's, that's my acronym. FATS manager. I love, I love an acronym to help me. Yeah. Okay. Finance go. and technical support manager. Okay. So the first question when people have their first episode on our podcast is how did you get to TCFE? How did you get into the movement to end domestic violence? Deb, do you want to go first? I'd be glad to. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. I actually worked at a domestic violence agency back years ago, back when my first job out of college, actually. And got out of the movement, went more into the financial world and worked at Council of Governments for years. And then that job kind of ended and I was running back and forth to Alabama, taking care of my mom and decided I needed to work. And I just went to the TCFE website and there was the, my current job posted. And I was like, oh, this is me. This is what I do. I know all of this. You know, so I was very blessed and able to just apply and took a few months. But, you know, I within a probably within two days, I got an request for an interview. So I was very excited to be a part of the movement because I do have experience with it, personal experience. And it means a lot to be able to help these agencies. And that was, you've been here six years now, six years at TCV. Yeah. So, and we're just now getting on the podcast. What a shame. We're correcting that error right now in this moment. Mm-hmm. Ryan, what about you? Hey, William. Hey, Samantha. I'm also glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You know, I'm a recovering middle school teacher. I taught middle school for 10 years before getting into the movement. And, you know, really for me, it was, you know, people always ask me like, you know, why did you quit teaching? Was it the kids? They were terrible. And it wasn't, it was, the kids were actually the best part. It was, you know, the politics and the standardized testing and the parents. And so, you know, when I was looking to get away from that, but yet still wanting to work with young people and teach, I got the opportunity to work in the community education and prevention department at a DV agency. And I loved it because I still got to interact with the kids, actually got to talk about things that were relevant to them, relationships and things like that. But I didn't have to grade any papers. I didn't have to talk to their parents. I didn't have to discipline them. And so it was really the best of both worlds. And I really didn't even know what a nonprofit was really until I started looking around for jobs. And then it was just a perfect dovetailing of passion and mission. And and so that's what uh, led me to work in the movement. And then I've been at TCV a little under a year. So as a grant writer and loving every minute of it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. We put on each other for a little bit because the interaction in those prevention spaces. And mm-hmm. so it's been great to have you at TCFE. Yeah. And I love how both of y'all just kind of stumbled into these 
perfectly matched positions for you both. And we're lucky enough to benefit from it. (laughs) So it's fate that's brought you to us, I guess. (laughs) So I'm going to move us on to our icebreaker. And I want to keep it on theme with talking about finance and money. So my question to you all is, what is your first memory of money? And Ryan, I'll pass it over to you. Well, that's a really interesting question. I never thought of a question like that before. (laughs) My first memory of money is not really a good one. And maybe that's why I'm just terrible with money ever since. (laughs) But when I was three years old, our house got broken into. And really, the only thing I remember is being scared and the police were there. And my dad's jar of coins, you know, was missing. And it seems like I was at everybody's the height of everyone's knees and everyone seemed really big. And that was my first sort of memory of actual money. I wish I had something profound to say afterward. Oh my gosh, that is scary. And also really similar to my story. What? Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, like the literal exact same scenario. So that is my first memory. I don't know that I was three. I was maybe around that age. But yeah, our, our house got broken into. It was my coin jar, though. I had been saving up coins here and there. And yeah, they took my change and it's, it was a real bummer. And I remember, yeah, feeling sad because I worked so hard for all that money and I, you know, yeah, felt cautious and unsafe and just, you know, was not a fun memory. So hopefully I could pass it over to Deb and William for something a little happier, maybe. Brighten this up. No pressure though. (laughs) I'll go. I think my first memory really that I can think of at the moment is just opening like a birthday envelope card, you know, and there's money in it. Back in your little, and you're just like, oh, wow, you know, it's, it might be $2. It was like, wow, it's a fortune, you know? So yeah, that's my main first memory. It's so funny that like Ryan and Deb, like y'all, or Samantha and and Ryan, y'all's stories are similar because that's exactly what I was thinking, Deb, was like, but not so much your like appreciative aspect of it. One of my earliest memories was my mom having to sit me down to be like, you can't just open the card, grab the money and throw the card away. Uh, you were that like, kid. <laughs> you have to like Pretend. read or like look at the card, <laughs> know who it's from, say thank you. You don't count the money in front of people. Like yeah. you can be excited about the money. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But you can't just rip the card open, <laughs> take the cash. <laughs> And throw the card away. <laughs> so, yeah, especially in front of them. <laughs> right. Yes. And yeah. I think that actually turned into a thing for me to keep card. Like, I have every birthday card that I've ever gotten. Wow. Really? That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. And wow. Mom's lesson really stuck. Like, it, it really, like, it's in there in a drawer. I need to have a chat and birthday get some pointers. Cards, <laughs> Christmas card, like any card that someone like wrote in in particular. Like, I have. Wow. I have it. So Samantha, imagine what our lives could have been like. Right? Right. <laughs> I mean, because here's the thing. I did get money in cards after that. But yeah, that's not what comes to mind. The first thing that comes to mind as my first memory is, yeah. You got that money and it got stolen. Yeah. Wow. Wasn't yeah. fair. I was a kid. I was like, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad that y'all had great experiences. And I really think... Overall, when you look at it, all of our experiences, 
I think it really boils down to learning the value of money and our relationship with money and like what the sort of rules around money are, right? Like you don't take somebody else's, you're appreciative when it's given to you, you know, how do we talk about it? That kind of thing. There's a sort of culture and expectation around money, right? So I think we're going to end up exploring some of that in our episode today anyway. So those lessons continue. Speaking of, (laughs) Ryan, I think in your introduction, you made a comment of when you were transitioning from teaching into the violence prevention work you were doing, that you weren't even completely sure what a nonprofit was, but that you were drawn in by the role and by the work in the violence prevention with young people. So I guess the first thing that we should cover is what a nonprofit is specifically from a finance perspective. Yeah, great question. I think it's amazing, you know, those times when you reach a certain age or certain decade and you think, how did I go that long without really knowing what it is? But I think, you know, I knew that they didn't make a profit, for example, but that's about as much as, as I understood. But then when you think about, well, a for-profit you know, organization is selling goods or services, and that's how they're generating their money, then and nonprofits are not selling anything. They're, they're giving things away, you know, i.e. time, money, passion, resources, services. And the money comes from, of course, grants is, is one of the places or one of the sources. And maybe, you know, Deb could speak on some of those other ones, though. But there are several different types of grants. There's a government grants, foundation grants, there's federal, there's state. And also, depending on which grant, that money flows oftentimes from the federal government through, like in Texas, through the Office of the Attorney General. And then sometimes even TCFV, we get money through that pipeline. And then do subgrants to uh, different DV agencies throughout Texas. But yeah, I'd like to hear what you guys think or what you think, Deb. Well, I really I kind of looked at this because then I got overwhelmed because nonprofit and not for profit are two different things. I didn't know that. What? I learned yes. I didn't know that either. A it's... nonprofit is explicitly to benefit the public support of their mission. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's public good support of the mission. And a not-for-profit exists to fulfill an owner's organizational objectives. So you can have a nonprofit or not-for-profit that actually is meeting their organizational objectives, but they don't actually are not necessarily uh-huh. a public good support of their mission. And some are tax deductible, some nonprofits are tax deductible and some aren't. So it depends on how they file. Like a 501c3 can take tax deductible do- donations. Whereas if you're just a nonprofit and you haven't taken that extra step, you can't allow or provide for a tax exemption to a donation. So it's just kind of weird. So but complicated. Taxes. Really yes, yes. So thinking about nonprofits mm-hmm. and how they're funded, there's government money like in reference to some of the things and tax revenue and not tax revenue, but the tax exemptions that they get. But we also have fundraising where people are just like giving money, right? Which we'll talk about a little in a little bit, I think. But the other big source that a lot of nonprofits, not all of them, but a lot of them use are grants. And so my next kind of like, what is it question is like, what's a grant? Like how, like what is that compared to like a loan or like, 
other money that you're raising in other ways or selling things to get profits? What is a grant? I have a few ideas. In my thoughts, a grant is when one party grants funds to another party to do something in reasonable hopes that the task can be accomplished. Whereas a contract is legally binding and you going to get the money for exchange of the services. They're kind of the same, but you know the contracts are a little tougher to deal with. And I think most state funders or federal funders are going to treat a grant almost like a contract anyway, because they have so many requirements with it. So it almost becomes pointless because you got to follow all the rules and regulations anyway. But it seems maybe a little more flexible than a little more, yes, than they have more flexibility. Fee definitely. for service kind of yes, exchange. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah, I guess to look at it from like the federal grant um, viewpoint, which I think is, you know, probably the majority of where most uh, DB orgs or maybe even nonprofits money is coming from. But in addition to like William was saying, uh, donations or campaigns, I know also some organizations have endowments and things like that. But usually it's coming from some federal agency or office like the Office of Violence on Women or like OVW or the OAG or what are some of the others or HHSC or coming through the federal government through the FIFSA, the HHS state coalition grants. But, you know, usually those government organizations, they have a mission or a purpose in violence prevention, et cetera, and they come up with a certain number of grants and of certain amounts that they're going to give out each sometimes every year, every two years or whatnot. And they basically create a bunch of stipulations saying that this is the amount of money that we can give you to do X, Y, and Z within these sort of areas. And these are the requirements. And you got to tell us what you're going to do with the money, budget sheet, You also have to tell us what your plan is and who your staff are and what objectives or deliverables are they going to be able to meet. And there's some legal mumbo jumbo and some signing of papers and presto bango, you got money in your account. It's as easy as that, folks. I was just going to say another way to think of a grant. It's government funds for ideas and projects to provide public services and to stimulate the economy. That's what I've heard before. You know, it's a way for them to to not actually have to do the service themselves, but to have it outsourced and to stimulate the economy is usually what a lot of them are there for, too. Yeah. And there I think in what both of you have said, like there are stipulations, there are like structures around the grant on things that you can't just spend it on anything you want. And it's not a loan. Like you don't have a like you don't have to pay it back if you spend it. And if you don't spend it, in some cases, you do have to return it to the bigger pot that it came from. But if you spend it on the things that you were supposed to spend it on under your grant agreement, then you don't have to pay it back. It's not a loan. It's a funding source that has been, I think, Deb, you said it, like granted to you, given to you by an agency that supports your projects or your mission or your staffing or whatever. So what are mm, this is really hard because there is a bunch of different grants, but like. Are there some typical limitations or exclusions or exemptions from grant money or maybe not typical, but common? So like one of the ones that I can think about is like when we travel on our grant money, we can't buy alcohol, right? Like we can't. So like, are there other things that are maybe not every grant out there ever, but pretty common things that you can't use grant money for? 
I, yeah, I can jump in. So, you know, a lot of them have the stipulation that you can't use this money for lobbying, for example. Mm -hmm. um, certain grants, depending on what department they're from or, or what the funding comes from, will or won't allow certain like prevention, like what you guys do. There are some grants that say we only want this to go to direct services, for example, or we want this to go to residential programs, but this grant over here can, you know, do non-residential programs or prevention or some grants, they combine like sexual assault prevention, like RPE with the like HHSC, their SNRP grant, they will only fund DV agencies for teen dating violence, but not SA. And so, and that's why it's really important. And I, of course, I was joking when I said it's so easy because, you know, a lot of times these application kits are 30, 40 pages long, and then there's an addendum to the addendum. And so there are several, oftentimes 12 different forms to do. But the thing about, that's really good about, you know, working at a nonprofit like TCFE that's so well established and so many around Texas is that these are sort of recurring grants. And if we've been good stewards of their money in the past and we're submitting our reports on time and our reports are accurate and oftentimes, not oftentimes, but there are, depending on the department, sometimes they'll come and audit us or they'll do like a, a desk audit with scare quotes, whatever that is. But so documentation is super important, you know, speaking about the grant side on the programmatic, you know, activities, but also on the finance side with the budgets, because there are some, and I'm sure Deb could speak to things more specific, but very specific things that they will and won't allow, depending on the grant or the person or what positions they're funding. Yeah, you hit the highlights, though, you know, the alcohol, lobbying, capital improvements, entertainment, of course, you know, things like that. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we can't take first class flights. We can't, you know, we can't do like luxury, like we're not buying Taylor Swift tickets with grant money or anything like that and then tips and you know something else recently that i began to understand is the difference between uh, like a disallowable yeah. expense and a billable expense and that's mm -hmm. different from a reimbursable you know expense and so you know in most cases or maybe deb you could uh, correct me if i'm wrong but whatever's paid for tax um, can't be billed to a funder, right? Can't be billed to HHSC. That has to come from our unrestricted funds. And so there's just a lot of detail. And really, I never appreciated the exacting and, and sometimes very tedious and hard work of finance staff and what they do oftentimes in the shadows and nobody knows what they're doing, but they're pumping out your reimbursement checks and the, they're keeping track of all this stuff. And then you know, after you submit all these things and you tell them exactly what you're going to be using their money for, you know, something changes or there's a position open or for whatever reason, they come back with some special conditions and or you have to do a budget adjustment. And so I just finance people out there. I bow to you and you make our work possible. You mm -hmm. know? Speaking of which, I'm wondering if y'all can kind of talk about that because we've got sort of like a representative from each side of the coin here. So can you talk a little bit about how grants and finance work together? Like what are the differences and how does that flow happen? I'll go ahead just real quick. I think that the main thing grants do is fund the cause. They fund our cause. The difference to me is that grants are a revenue or a funding source, whereas finance is management of the money. You're tracking it, you're investing it, you're borrowing, lending, you know, forecasting, saving, doing reimbursements. You're just keeping and managing it to your best ability. 
to maximize the use of it. So like grants are like one piece of finance as a whole, right. but grants are their own because like you have to write the application and you have to do all this thing. Like you have to manage your grant yeah. also, but then it's this one puzzle piece. to the whole finance picture for an organization. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe there, it's kind of a misnomer to say grants and finance, even though it sounds awesome because it rhymes, you know, grants are a thing and, and finance is kind of, yeah, the department or the art of or the, the, the system. And so, you know, grant management, you know, a, a part of which is, you know, grant writing and grant reporting. I think the analog there is right, the, the money management or the, the finance, capital F. But I was saying, you know, when you apply for the grants, you have to tell them, you know, give them all of your financials and, and create a budget. And so the finance is there. And then during those budget adjustments, and then like you said, Deb, all of the other sort of paying the bills and interest and different bank accounts and reimbursement checks and not to mention payroll, right? Yeah. So how important, or maybe a better question is, why is it important for staff in the organization, finance and other staff, to be involved in the grant process? So applying for grants, like the grant application process and also the reporting process. Why is it important for staff to be aware of what's happening and how does that support your role, Ryan? Wow, that's a great question, Samantha. I think it's such a good question because I can relate to that. When I first started my first job in a nonprofit, a few months into my job, my director was no longer there. And so I have this job that she kind of taught me how to do, but I didn't know like what the grant said I should be doing or what I need to be reporting or, you know, is all of this demographic information that I'm making these poor teachers tell me, do I even need that, you know, and are we just doing it because that's the way it's always been done or, you know, somebody decided it was a good idea 10 years ago. So I think knowing what the grant reporting requirements are, are super important because it's going to save you a lot of work, you know, even if it is prevention or, you know, direct services. But I also think understanding just sort of the process and the flow of the money and how a nonprofit works in general, that sort of like integrative knowledge can only benefit a nonprofit, you know, and it empowers staff members. I do think sometimes there can be a tendency to a couple of people from, you know, the C-suites go into a, a dark room and close the curtain and then they outcome with, with the budget, you know, and things like that. And I think depending upon the case or whatever, that may or may not be warranted. But I think it, it's open and transparent as an organizations can be with their employees that are about those grants that are directly funding them is very empowering. And you want to make sure that everything is up to date because what is up to date is usually reflective of best practice, et cetera. And so we always want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence for our clients and for those we serve. I actually have two thoughts though, just on that note of having staff involved with the grant process. You get more accurate reporting and deliverables because they understand what's going on. And you also get the buy-in from the staff because like, they understand what's going on. <laughs> just makes everything a lot easier. Yeah, and that buy-in, I think, is so important and that, that trust through the transparency, but also being able to take ownership of it in a way, I yeah. think, to be like, oh, okay, well, this is what we said we're going to do, and this is what we did, and wow, 
we're doing our evaluations or, you know, reading our things, obviously we want to adapt or continue to grow or pivot when we need to. And so having those people that are on the front lines doing the work, be involved in those discussions about next year's application and updating what we said we're going to do and why we're doing those things or adding in new programs. Hey, let's do a podcast. Well, where are we going to get the money for that? I don't know, but let's we have to lay out a plan and what it's going to be for and you know what project code and geo code is it going to go under and you know, all that stuff kind of matters when it comes to, to grants and finance. And Deb, you saying it results, staff participation in the grants process results in more accurate deliverables, I think is a really important thing to say, because I think there is this perception, particularly because a lot of frontline staff aren't involved in the grants process. So there is this perception that the funder gives you the money and the details of how you should do your work and says, this is what you have to do. But the piece that's missing from that part, and Ryan, you kind of talked about it, is that you've told the grantor what you're going to do, right? To your point, Ryan, if the CEO and the CFO go into an office and just make up the grant report and say, we're going to do 10,000 individual contacts on a given service, and then it gets to the person actually going to be doing that work, and they're like, 10,000 win. <laughs> like, so to Deb's point, like having the talking to the staff and having the staff engage in that process, you can really help determine and tell the grantor, like, what is possible, like, actually based on how many staff you have and how much capacity they have to do their job. So I think pulling the two things that you were saying together to say, like, there are some things that the grantor tells you you can and cannot do for sure. Well, we just talked about a minute ago, right? Like, no Taylor Swift tickets, no alcohol, like things like that. All the fun things. But as far as your program deliverables go, like the person applying for the grant is the one telling them what is possible and what you can do. And most grants, some are less flexible from what I understand. But if you get into a situation where a position becomes vacant or you have to take medical leave or something like that, most grants will allow you to make some sort of adjustment. To say, all right, we said 10,000, but really it's only going to be 7,000 because this thing is vacant, right? Or we don't have the person to do the work anymore or whatever. And so that relationship with the person giving you the money is really important and having like accurate information and not like overshooting what you can do, at least by too much. It's good to be hopeful. Like we're trying for 10,000, we got 9,500. So I thought, I thought that that was a really great insight the way that you said it, like involving staff to get accurate deliverables. Yeah, if I could just, yeah, that was great, William. I think, yeah, you tied that together very nicely. And I think back to when I inherited a program, there was like a DV 101 and it was 30 minutes and it was kind of scripted thing. And then there was like a teen dating violence thing and it had a worksheet and it was 30 minutes. And over time I developed, let's beef this up and then let's offer a 90 minute thing here, but then we can do like a 15 minute, like show up at the luncheon and just tell it about the org. Hey, and then over the years, let's develop a stocking program that we can offer through webinars or whatever. And let's, since it's a new program, let's shoot for 500 in a year, right? And then we can increase that. And so exactly what you were saying, William, is we can tell them 
well, we're going to be doing this program, this program, develop this new one, and we're going to try this one out. And this is how many people we say we're going to reach, et cetera. And all of those things are oftentimes determined by the organization. Like you said, there are limits imposed from the funders themselves. But so many of those things can and should be updated and adapted year after year after every reapplication. Yeah. I think that's another good point is that often we get into this. You mentioned earlier, Ryan, that like once you have established yourself as a good steward of a grant, like often it's maybe not easy, but it's easier to like re-up on that grant every grant cycle. And I think that as staff turnover happens, like you can get into this like a rote situation where you're just using the same grants and you're just you know, changing the dates, but you're not really changing your numbers or like the project that you're working on. And so then it feels like, well, the grant wants us to do this specific thing. And it's like, exactly. Yes. Because you told them 10 years ago that that's what you were going to do. And nobody has changed it since then. Because nobody's around anymore. Right. And so they don't even realize that. Yes, that's super empowering. I would encourage everyone to look into or inquire about looking at the details of your grant. Maybe not necessarily, you know, the budget line items and things like that, but um, certainly the deliverables and, and the reporting requirements. Yeah. And I think you can be really intentional, right? Like you can be as intentional as you want as a program to kind of, okay, well, when we start talking about work plans and grant applications and and how you line these things up and how you, like the timing of these things and when you start having these conversations and when you start planning these activities and how as an organization, maybe how you're documenting your time and your activity and, and kind of like tying it all together and with this bow, right, which is really, I recognize, right, like, I've done direct service, and it can get really chaotic sometimes, or, you know, things don't pan out how they're intended, or, but if you have the intention of working through all of these components together, it can make that process and just a little bit more seamless, just very intentional. The word intentional is very important. Because that's part of planning and strategic planning. And if you're not intentional with what you tend to do or plan to do with your program, it's like you said, you're just going to keep doing the same thing. You're never going to have any continuous improvement, which is what most of your funders are looking for. I'm wondering about for you, well, I think we might talk a little bit more about what you do for TCFE and for our member programs in a little bit. But as you go in to help programs assess their finance situation, I imagine that if there's a lack of intentionality, that's when mistakes come up also. Yes. And that you end up, I think audits are normal. I feel like audit is a scary word. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like people are used to like, the IRS is coming for me. It does have like, a, got, they're coming to catch you, you know? Yeah. And I don't, oftentimes that's not, they're very willing to work with you, you know, go ahead. Right. And sometimes it's also not necessarily because you did something wrong. It's just a normal part of the process of someone that's given you money and they're just checking. So maybe let's stop here for a second. And could we just talk about what an audit is or like what different types of audits are? I'd love to talk about the difference between audit and monitoring. Let's do it. Because you have an outside auditor comes in, a financial CPA of some kind to audit your financial records. And then monitoring to me is always when the funder comes in to see if you're doing what you said you're going to do with your grant. Is the money going where it's supposed to be going? And 
The one thing I always share with agencies is that monitoring, it seems like an audit because you think they're coming in to get you, but you need to think of it as a free consultation. Because if you had to pay an agency, a consultant to come in and to do that level of work, fifteen dollars to $20,000 easy. And that probably just barely gets you an analysis. And not against all the rules and all the requirements and all the expectations. So monitoring is really quite a blessing to fund an agency that's being funded by someone. So it kind of like sets you up to do well in an audit then. Like if you can take that information and you can kind of course correct where you might need to, then when your audit does come, then you're really well positioned to pass your audit because you've already taken in any notes that the funder might have. Exactly. Exactly. They look at your internal controls. They look at everything that you're doing. They send you these massive books to fill out before they come, all these questions. And, you know, it's just a really awful time. You're almost giddy with it. <laughs> I, wish, I really wish people could see how excited <laughs> Deb is. The passion that she has for this is just beaming through her. And I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. I just want people to take advantage of it and not think of it as a death threat. They're, they're going to come and execute your program. It well, sounds so scary. Yeah, it does. It does. Why, why are people scared? That I mean, do people honestly have zero cause to be scared? Or like, what are the possible repercussions? Or how often do they work with you and be like, hey, we understand, bro. You know, everybody does this. Or, you know, at what point does it become what are you doing here, man? Yeah. Yeah. I think the way they, most monitoring reports come to you, you get a notice of what the issue was, what the citation is that you're supposed to be following. And then you just have to come up with a plan on how you're going to correct that. What are you going to do in the future? Even with, it gets a little different with the money, because if you have something that was a, it's usually just a question cost. And then they allow you to try to document that it's an allowable cost. And then if it's not allowable, well, then it's disallowed and you have to re- repay it. And that happens occasionally. And it's usually something simple like somebody went out to lunch and they didn't get a receipt and it was with a board member and it was a working lunch and the ED could have charged it, but she never bothered to get a receipt. So the funder's not going to pay you for it, period. Not going to happen. An example that I have that I've gotten us a TCFE of finding on our things is like one of our grants in order to pay for food you have to be with outside of a 50 mile radius of your home base. Right. And one time I was traveling for work and I was at the airport. It was super early in the morning and I was flying to Brownsville or somewhere. I don't remember, but I was flying somewhere for work. And I was like, well, I'm working. Like, and I was actually working from the airport. I was on a call. I was like, well, I'm going to get breakfast. And so I got breakfast and I paid for it with my TCFE credit card. And it was like $13. And because I was like, I'm working. Like, this is a work trip. And it, they came back in our audit and was like, we're going to need that $13 back, thanks. Um, what? Yeah. Did they literally look at the receipt and see the location was Austin Airport? And they... I guess so. That's, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I wasn't involved in that. Yeah. One of the things I've seen is they like to monitor travel, especially a few of our agencies. Then they just really like to look at, oh, did he... You know, is this there's a tip here? Is there a tax here? Is there, you know, just anything that's just to make them feel like they've accomplished something? <laughs> I'm a former monitor. I'll say that. And I actually will admit that when I worked for the council of governments for my first five years, 
I was a mo- program monitor and I would go out and do physical and program and monitor and that. And yeah, nobody liked to see me come, but you just have to take advantage of it and learn to live with it. And I think, again, like in that conversation that I had, that I've been working for TCFU for like less than a year. In that conversation, I was like, oh, I got a finding. What now? Like, I don't like I was super scared. And they were like, it's fine. Like, no, for next time that like you can't do this. Right. Like. It was a small... They they just charged it on restricted. They didn't make you pay it back, did they? They didn't make me pay it back, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say that would have been ridiculous because that's, yeah, that's just an honest mistake, yeah. So I'm curious, like, I mean, we've talked a little bit about... There's there's rules, right? Like if somebody's giving you money and the, especially the amounts that we're talking, right? There's some stipulations, right? Like not just the deliverables, but these like boundaries and kind of restrictions that we've been talking about. So let's say a program is unsure of something and they are not sure about making a certain expense or maybe they are making a change in their programming or their whatever it is if they're unsure about how this would affect their grant is there somebody they could talk to who is the person that they would need to ask so this is a great question because you know sometimes it's it's hard to find out i know for me when i was trying to search out you know my grant it took a little bit of of asking and searching but you know, if you know what your grant is, you can go to that government department or office's website, and there's usually a grants page. And every grant comes with either like application kit instructions, or they have like an allowable cost guide, and they'll break down exactly what you can and can't use it for, and what the expense categories that you can use for. And gosh, I'm rambling. I've already forgot what your question was. No, just, and actually that's super helpful information too. And I think any resource where a program or somebody can figure out those bounds is helpful, but just if they, if they need to bounce something off of somebody, is there a person that they can talk to, to ask these sorts of questions? Well, that would probably be me. Most agencies call me with these questions and I encourage them to call me rather than call me first. And I might be able to get an answer from somebody rather than asking your funder and let them possibly get the perception you don't know what you're doing. So there's a balance there. And sometimes I can go to the funder and get an answer quicker than anything else if they were to ask. If you're looking at somebody trying to figure out if it's allowable cost or not allowable cost, I think the first thing you do is you find your supervisor and you ask them about the contract or the grant, you know, what does it say there? And then there are federal rules and there's state rules. There's 2 CFR 200, which is the uniform grant guidance that for federal funds you have to follow. And for state funds, the Texas grant management standards are what you have to follow. And a lot of the answers are going to be in those documents, but they're kind of like several hundred pages each. (laughs) So I can help point you in the right direction. Also, there's a grant manager for for every grantor. There's a a grant manager that manages the grants given to to the grantees. And that's usually a person's name and an email. So, and oftentimes they're the ones that are emailing either your finance or admin, you know, the award letter and and things like that. And so asking your supervisor who that is or reaching out to Deb or or the great other people here at TCFE who can provide technical assistance. It might be a bit off topic, but I wanted to ask Deb because I heard or something 30% 30% of nonprofits fail within the first, you know, something years. And I was wondering, like, how often, it, do you know the reason why nonprofits often fail? Or is it because of failing audits or mismanagement? mismanagement? 
It's usually fiscal bench management. If they can't get the ED out in time and the company fails, that's it's usually fiscal mismanagement. Somebody's embezzled something. Somebody has just not going to follow the rules, won't submit their financials. I've actually run into one agency that just dissolved because their CEO, who was a, I thought she was a CPA, they couldn't get any of their financial reports into the state. And then they just sort of decided to shut down. And it's like, what? You know, so you never know what people are going to do. Gosh, and you know, from a advocate or education worker or coordinator standpoint, sometimes it's like, oh, I've got to fill out my timesheet or I've got to, you know, do this like mundane task of filling out my activities and things like that. Or from like all the way up to managers and EDs who are filling out these, like you said, the reports and things like that. Like it all matters. <laughs> like it really is important. And I think sometimes we underestimate or like we want to focus on the action part of our job of the action of doing presentations and trainings and the action of yeah yeah, serving because you're in a nonprofit like you want to do the service part but yeah the other part the documentation and everything is also so so important for exactly what you just talked about and I can't stress that enough time and activity sheets how important they are because most agencies track 85% of their budget is going to be staff time and activities and benefits. 85% of most nonprofits budgets are salaries, compensation. And so you have to have something to document that because if you just pay in staff salary, I don't know. What allowable activities are you doing for this grant? So that's why it gets really daunting to do that. Plus, any of the items that are not specifically charged to a grant to one grant, you know, you have things that are allowable to one grant and you have things allowable to the other. But if you have something that has to share the cost, like your electricity for your shelter, you generally allocate that based on time and activity of the staff. And if you don't have the timesheets, you then can't put those in and then you don't get reimbursed. Because if you don't have it allocated, you can't get your money back from each of the funders. And eventually you're going to run out of money and you might have to shut your doors, not be able to pay staff. I knew math was evil. That's shutting down shelters out here. Like math, just. It is. So talking about timesheets. So some, and I think Ryan mentioned this term earlier, some things get charged to unrestricted. Sometimes it's staff time. Sometimes it's when somebody buys food and they're not 50 miles away from home. Sometimes things get charged to unrestricted. But what is unrestricted funds? Like, where do they come from? What are they? Usually it's donations or foundation grants, you know, or an agent, a company in your town gives out small grants that have no, you know, just of here's $17,000 or private donations, you know, just individual, or you might have a gala, you might have a fundraiser, you have fundraising activities. It's also important to track because those are unrestricted activities. Fundraising is not something you had ever charged any of your grants because that's supporting your agency. So Donations also like investments or endowments that, uh, you know, the organization may have. Yeah, they can get an endowment or investment. You're getting money that usually unrestricted means basically you don't have to follow any specific rules. If you have something you want to do as an agency, that's the money you want to have some of so that you can maybe pay for those things that the grant doesn't allow or maybe start a new little program that you want to get grant funded, but you need to get it going because usually they're not going to fund a program that doesn't exist. You know, so little things like that. That's why you want to have your unrestricted money and to pay for that that breakfast that William had. Yeah. Yeah. So unrestricted money is a really important part of 
nonprofits generally, but also like TCFV because we do legislative engagement and we do sometimes travel in different parts of not just the state, but like we have people that travel out of state for conferences and speaking engagements. And so sometimes it's important. And we do, a TCFV does have, I think, two endowments actually. And so I don't know if we really have time to get into what an endowment is, but essentially like we're getting, we're making our money work for us where we put some money in an account and we are garnering that interest but the other important thing about unrestricted funds is that if someone donates TCFE or to one of our member programs, their local domestic violence shelter, that money is unrestricted. Now, here's an important question. Can I, if I'm donating to, let's say, like my local program is SAFE, if I'm donating to SAFE, can I tell SAFE how I want that money to be spent? Or does it have to be totally open to whatever they want to spend it on. Can I donate to a specific project or department? I say yes, you can. <laughs> but depending on the amount, is it worth it to the agency to accept that donation? And is it going to enhance and expand their mission and vision statement? So because you can't just give them money and say, do this, if that doesn't have anything to do with their mission and vision. Good point. Good point. Yeah. But if I want... Let's say I have a few hundred extra dollars and I want it to go to the prevention team at agency. I can say, I want this money to go to prevention. They'll take it and process it the way they need to for that. They should. Yeah. So it's important, I think, for people to know that, to say that, like, if you want to support your local program or you want to support DCFE, you can say, I want this to go to prevention education. I want this Just to go prevention, to... For example. Yeah, just prevention. Just I want this to go to shelter. I want this to go to whatever it is. Like you can direct the money and maybe it's a certain threshold, like like your five dollars. I mean, I think you can direct in a particular way if you wanted to, but I think that it's important for people to know that that they can donate to an agency they care about, but also within that agency they can donate to a project or a particular Hmm. department that they care about. But the key to that, that I always like to advise people on is that somebody's still going to have to manage that money. So a little bit of that might have to go to the accounting department to track it. Those are things that have to be taken into consideration because everything costs. Yeah. And if you put that restriction, that becomes a restriction, even if it's unrestricted for the prevention right. department, right. it is a restriction for the agency to right. use that money in that way. And so that's something else the agency has to Keep track. Going. So you can also just donate generally and say, use this money, however it most benefits the agency. And sometimes that's some sort of administration. Sometimes it's some sort of program or other cost. So, yeah. And this is where I encourage agencies to have a wish list. I really do, especially for strategic planning purposes, because I'm working with an agency now that they asked for 125000 and the agency said, oh, no, we're going to give you $175,000. Well, what do I do with that extra 50000 I have no plan for it now. So now I've got to work on a plan for $50,000. And if you've been working on plans on how to expand your program and looking at things like that ahead of time and what it would cost, always having something like that on the back burner, you could then implement quicker and utilize the money more effectively. I think a wish list is a great idea, especially like that kind of wish list. Like mm-hmm. I think when people hear wish list, they think it's like an Amazon wish list and it's yeah. people asking for things like physical things, which are also really great for local programs because they mm-hmm. always need 
things for shelter, even program things for prevention, beach ball, hula hoop, things for prevention activities. Engagement is great. Printing costs, like there's there's plenty of things. But having like a broader strategic plan wish list, like if we had an extra $50,000, we could start this program or we could serve this county or we could do these different things, I think is a really great piece of advice. Yeah, I think too, that's like, it goes back to what we were saying about empowering staff with that knowledge is most of us are here because we love what we do, not for the money. And so the staff on the front lines, they're the ones that can be able to see or that often have those, you know, quote, wish lists where it's like, wow, everybody's swamped, like trying to, you know, contact CPS and we're just, you know, regular advocates. And God, what if we had a a position that would just be the liaison with CPS? And so being able to sort of know where the money's coming from and what the adaptability is or the room to grow or to add something on, I think too, for staff that are having those wish lists or they see gaps or they see possible solution or another extra position or extra program, always be, you know, talking about that, I think. And then looking at the application kit and the requirements and then see if um, anything can fit in there and maybe grow your program. I feel like we could just keep talking about finance and grants and just go in a million different directions, but we are getting close to time. And so while we're on this kind of advice line of thinking, I'd like to know if either or both of you have like one or two big pieces of advice for grants or finance. So it could be, I mean, it could be anything related to it. Like maybe it's just a good stewardship type of advice or just a a pitfall that sometimes people come across. But any final words of wisdom for the people, for the programs, for the advocates, for the general public regarding grants or finance? Yeah, I do. Not trying to be subversive, but I think one of a really great question to ask is why? Like, you know, why are we doing this? Why are these our programs? Why is it being done this way? I really do. And I think not just screaming it at the sky, why, but actually finding the answers, because you you may find oftentimes that there is no reason why. And that is a license to be creative and be original and update. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes too, people that have been in the movement, just like anywhere for a long time too, maybe forget why or those reasons. And I think, you know, always asking why is a great way to get to change one way or the other, but also just information, I think, is the more you know, the more empowered you can be. That's one of the things that came to mind. Also, just like be super organized with your file folder structure and documentation and your emails, all that jazz. Be able to find stuff when they ask for it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think the one thing that I haven't mentioned that we've talked about is allowable is different for a lot of people. And when you stop to think about it, you have to actually think of what a prudent person would do. That's the definition that they usually use with everything, which means it's an individual who uses good judgment or common sense in handling practical manners. You know, it's kind of vague, but when you're looking at whether to purchase something or whether to do something or whether it's allowable or not, if you immediately have that gut feeling of, oh, nah, it's probably right. <laughs> then you have to take it a step further. And if it is something you feel passionate about and you think will meet the mission and vision and is allowable, 
rewrite it. It's like advertising versus marketing. You can't do advertising only for jobs, only for employment. Will a grant pay for advertising? But if you do outreach and marketing, that's allowable. So it's all in how you identify and perceive and understand what your agency is doing too. Kind of a weird tip, but just something to be aware of. I love it. I think like being strategic in the way that you think about things, but also like trusting your gut on, I think that that's always good advice. So when in doubt, ask someone. Yeah. I was just reviewing a financial report and the bookkeeper they have doing it, they got a water bill. And all of a sudden, apparently they've never had a water bill before. I don't know where she's been charging it to, but now they have a new line item for unrestricted water and VOCA water. (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) So, you know, ask before you book is (laughs) a good point to think. And ask Deb. That's, that's, That's some advice that I've got is ask Deb, like legitimately, by the way, like if you are a TCFE member program, if you're working on domestic violence in the state of Texas, that's your resource. I don't know if you want to put some restrictions on when people should call you or not, what type of best. what type of support you offer, but email, yes, email, not call. That's yeah, that's a good one. But check out the finance professionals page on the website. Yeah. Deb does a conference once a year and all of her technical assistance services, all that stuff is there. It's really great. When's the finance conference? March 20th and 21st. Oh, nice. No time like the present to be planning your funding to <laughs> come to right. the finance conference. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And also, I know that we have a couple of resources that we'll be sure to link in the episode description. Mm-hmm. I think we have a funding flowchart and some information about the grant process. So we'll be sure to link all of that information on the episode description so you can take a look and hopefully it'll be helpful for you and your program. Uh, Brian, what a great combo. And like your first episode too, just out of the park there. Thank y'all for taking time. And we're about to enter the holiday season. Uh, So hoping everybody has a safe holiday season and any safe travel if people are doing it. So thank y'all for being here. Like Samantha said, we'll link some resources. So if anybody has any questions, they can reach out to the prevention email we put down there and we can make the right connections and be safe. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks.